very good morning to you all. It's lovely to see you all here this morning. My name's Neil, I'm married to the wonderful Kate, and together we attempt to serve this amazing community of uh, faith and believers here in Southwest London. If you're new or visiting, as Kate said, you're incredibly welcome. It's so great to see you. Uh, we'd love to connect with you and help connect you to some part of the body of Christ, whether that's here or somewhere else. We really don't mind. We just want everyone to be connected to the part of the body of Christ we're supposed to be part of. So um, come and find us afterwards, but you're, you're really welcome. Uh, one of the very many things I love about the Old Testament, and there are very many things I love about the Old Testament, uh, controversial I know, is that time and time again, you read through the Old Testament, you see these glimpses into like the presence of God, glimpses into the presence of God being revealed, uh, the glory of God, the glory of his majesty and his splendor and his presence and awe can be seen throughout the Old Testament in so many different ways. Um, from God walking in the garden in the cool of the day back in Genesis and then you know pillars of fire and columns of smoke in Exodus as God leads his people. Uh, there's um, burning bushes and shaken earth and powerful winds all the way through to the still small voice of God in Kings. And as you read through the Old Testament, you get, these, uh, you get these insights into the nature of God, who he is, you know, what he's like, what he does. And all of these things are revelations of God's glory. There's a, a familiar story in Exodus chapter 33. Moses wanted to see God's glory. God had said to Moses, I'm going to send you up into the promised land. And God had said, my presence will go with you. And Moses had sort of said to God, he said, you know, that's not enough. That's not enough. It's not enough just to know that you are with me. Your presence is great, but I'm sorry, it's not enough. And Moses says to God, he says, show me your glory. And God says, and this is a paraphrase, he sort of said, Moses, you couldn't cope with it. You, you just couldn't cope with it. It would destroy you. But God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and God passes by. And in this uh, theophany, which is like an intensive revelation of God's glory and presence, you know, really just underline the fact that he is always present and always faithful. In this moment, Moses just sees the back of God, but he is forever changed. And he's literally, his face literally glows as a result. In John, um, John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We behold God's glory when we see Jesus Christ. And then by the Holy Spirit, the revelation of the glory of God in and through the person of Jesus is brought near to us. And we see God's wonderful, marvelous, life-changing glory. Uh, last week we started looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians. Now, I, I don't know about you, but we're kind of sort of uh, week two into the new term and it's a bit like 
Here we go again, uh, new season, new academic year. This was the time of year, I mean, you're sure you don't do this anymore, but my memories of this time of year are sitting around uh, wrapping and binding textbooks in brown paper for the first day of term. Um, and just that kind of, I still have, you know, a September sort of sinking feeling in the pits of my stomach. It's like hardwired into me. But, you know, it sort of feels like, it's not a new year, but it feels like the start of a new year. And so kind of a bit like January, I start thinking about, you know, what are our hopes and what are our longings for this year? Uh, you know, for me, I, quite simply, I want this year to be a year where I see the Lord more clearly. I want to see even just a glimpse of that glory that Moses saw. And in this morning's uh, passage from Colossians 1, Paul is telling us something mind-blowingly awesome about the glory of God revealed in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And this passage that we're going to have a look at, it tells us something of who Jesus is, and it tells us something of what Jesus has done. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. I think we'll start in verse 9, and the words should miraculously appear behind me. This is Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. 
this has to be one of the most wonderful texts uh, in the Bible, and we could literally spend the rest of our lives just trying to plumb its depths, and so I am not even going to scratch the surface, the surface this morning, but I will try, um, but little caveat there. The passage is all about God's uh, glory. It's all about the glory of God revealed and unveiled in and through the person of Jesus, and God's glory is seen in the person of Christ, who he is. And God's glory is seen in the work of Christ, what Jesus has done. And then in, in verses 15 to 20, what we've essentially got is what scholars generally agree, which is rare, uh, generally agree is a hymn or an early creed. And most scholars agree that it wasn't written by Paul. Apparently the structure is different, the choice of words is different. And so most likely, what we've got here is an early song or an early creed that would have been known to this worshipping congregation in Colossae. And Paul is making reference to it and reminding them of it. And here's a song, here's a, a creed, here's something they sing. Sort of something like what we've just been doing here. Um, it's something that they regularly affirm. This was one of those songs that had made the 40. You know, Manny, you may not know. Manny's got a, a set list of 40 songs. This one was definitely on the 40, probably at the top of the, the top 40. They were singing it regularly, reciting it regularly, familiar with it, but somehow, maybe it was the prevailing culture of their time, the culture had crept in, and despite they were, the fact that they were singing it, they've strayed from it. And what Paul is doing here is he's trying to call them back to it. He's trying to call them back to the foundation of the gospel. He's trying to call them back to Jesus. And it's as if he's saying, you know, look, this song that's so familiar to you, the words that you sing, these concepts that you know inside out, let me remind you exactly of what they mean so that you can get your lives realigned with them again. You see, the problem is that this church is singing this song but is not living out its truth. They've moved away from the truth of the words that they were singing. And, you know, it's a pretty amazing song. It's like a template for our theology. It's a template for our spirituality. It's a template for our worship. You know, this passage is like a multifaceted diamond. You know, where every aspect... Every face reveals some precious aspect or facet of who Jesus is and what he's done. You know, and if you want to grow in your understanding of who Jesus is, all you need to do is spend some time in these, literally those five or six verses. Just sit in the presence of God and read these five or six verses. There's a story told about uh, Michelangelo and Raphael. And, um, you know, Raphael was Michelangelo's sort of young student, his pupil. I don't think they got on very well, but that's an aside. And Raphael had been doing this painting, um, but he was keeping it a secret until he kind of felt confident enough to show it to Michelangelo, you know, the great master. And um, eventually Michelangelo, I think Raphael was out drunk somewhere or whatever, but Michelangelo, I think, turns up to the studio and when he sees the painting that Raphael has done, that Michelangelo picks up a paintbrush and writes across it just one word in Latin. Amplius. Amplify. Make it bigger. 
you know, and you've got to feel for poor uh, Raphael. I mean, he wasn't bad. And, uh, you know, he'd probably done this sort of beautifully crafted but small picture of Christ. And what Michelangelo was saying was, you know, it's simply, it's not simply big enough. It simply isn't wonderful enough. It simply isn't glorious enough. And what he's trying to teach Raphael was that if he's going to put brush to canvas to try and depict something of the person of Jesus, then he needed to make it much, much bigger. Uh, for the Colossians and perhaps for some of us this morning, the reality is that our God is too small. If only we could see how utterly glorious the Lord Jesus is, and this passage is trying to do just that. In this song, there are 14 references to Jesus. Not once do you see the use of a personal pronoun. There's no me, no you, no us, no they. It's all about him. And one of the problems that the Colossians were facing is that they'd somehow made their faith all about them. Their faith had become about how they were doing, about how they were feeling, about how they were dealing with things. And in the process, they just lost sight of Jesus. And to remind the church there to get back to their first love, Paul starts off by reminding them who Jesus is. And verses eight to, uh, 15, to, sorry, 15 to 18 all speak to his supremacy, the glorious supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. In everything, he has the supremacy. Blaise Pascal, a great uh, philosopher, said, Jesus is the center of everything and the object of everything. And he that does not know that knows nothing about nature and nothing about himself. This is all about none other than Jesus. Jesus is all we need. That's it. And so Paul, desperately trying to remind them of what they already know, but seems to have forgotten, reminds them of who Jesus is. Remember who Jesus is, is what he's saying. Have a look at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. And the, the, the word in Greek here is the word icon, from which we get our word icon. And it, and it literally means the seen, unseen God. The seen, unseen God. Here I am. You see me. In John 14, 9, Jesus says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is the seen, unseen God. Jesus is the visible, invisible God. Uh, the early uh, first century Jewish philosopher Philo, he described Jesus as the Logos. Uh, who is this logos, the, the rationalizing, organizing mind behind the universe, the one that created it all and put it all together? And, and Philo said that this logos is the icon of God. Uh, John, you'll know, said Jesus is the logos, the word. And here Paul chooses to say Jesus is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible 
God. Jesus is the seen, unseen God. And then in verse 15, he goes on to say that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And the origin of the word firstborn, it doesn't mean that you're the firstborn chronologically, much to our eldest son's uh, dismay, who has been calling himself the firstborn since he was about three. Um, Firstborn always meant the one to whom is given executive power and authority, which in our case may or may not be the firstborn. Um, King David was called the firstborn but he wasn't, he, was, he wasn't the firstborn. He was actually the, the youngest and least of Jesse's sons. Jesus is the firstborn. He is the one on whom uh, has been given executive power and authority. Have a look at verses 16 to 17. For in him all things were created, things on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authority, whatever it is, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him, in Jesus, all things were created. I mean, that in itself is just like, that's mind-blowing. Jesus was before anything else existed. Jesus was before anything else was. And, you know, no matter how brilliant we are, no matter what scientific and technological advances we make, we can only catch a glimpse, the smallest glimpse, of this world that Jesus made. In him, all things were created. Jesus was before it all. He was before all things. And his name is Jesus, and he is the Lord. He is the preeminent one in his divinity and his creativity. Jesus is the origin of the species. He is the missing link. You know, we might be able to make stem cells and clone Dolly the sheep until she goes mad and blows up. But all of this is just manipulation. We can't make something out of nothing. That's creation. That's what God does. That's what Jesus does. And this cosmos was created by him and for him. Have a look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is the head. He is the head of the church. That means he's the command center. He's the source of life. He's the nerve center. He's the source of all action and direction. And if we want to function properly as a body, we have to stay connected to the head. I I mean, it's basic biology. Headless chickens might run around for a while, but it's not a pretty sight. Paul is reminding the Colossian church, and indeed us, that we need to stay close to Jesus at all times, remaining in him, abiding in him, aligned with him as the head, so that all the time he alone is leading and guiding and directing and controlling everything we do. Then in verse 19 it says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Again, you could just sit in that verse forever. Again, in the Greek, the word all generally means all. In him, all the deity dwelt. All of God's allness rested in Jesus. All of his fullness. What that means is everything that fills up God fills up Christ. All the fullness of God dwells in Christ. In Christ, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell 
in him. You know, the Old Testament, another thing I love about the Old Testament, the Old Testament is all about God dwelling among his people. God wanted to dwell with Adam and Eve in the garden. Then after the fall, God does everything possible to dwell with humankind. He dwells in the sanctuary, dwells in the tabernacle, until he finally dwells in human form in Christ Jesus. And then miraculously, he comes and dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. And we become the temple of his presence. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All of this stuff is just mind-blowing. H.G. Wells once said, is it any wonder that this Galilean to this day is just too much for our small hearts? Is it any wonder that, that, that this Galilean to this day is just too much for our small hearts? And this Jesus in, came in human form not just to show us his glory, but to restore us to his glory. Let's have a look at what he's done. Not only is Jesus glorious in his person, but perhaps, you know, for us, even uh, more so, Jesus is glorious uh, for his work. Have a look at verses 19 to 22. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by, ma by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This is all about what Jesus has done for us and how this glorious one has acted on our behalf. And what does it tell us that he's done for us? What's been accomplished? Verse 20, first of all, he's reconciled to himself all things. And he's done it by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 22, in order to present us holy in his sight, without blemish. If you know and love Jesus, you're without blemish. Free from accusation. If you know and love Jesus, you are free from accusation. Already. Done. See, the problem with these Christians in Colossae is that they were trying to get themselves right to God. They're like, oh, this can't be like this. This is far too simple. This simple gospel is really just too simple. There must be another, there must be something else we have to do. And so they tried to overcomplicate it. And so they thought, you know, by being super spiritual, and they kind of, some of them went off into a whole bunch of super spiritual stuff and they got caught up with angels and then they mixed up with the local gods and all kinds of stuff over here. So they went off in this direction. And then there was another bunch who went off and went, you know, the way to God is obviously by being super religious and pious. And so they said, you know, you can only eat certain foods and you must observe certain festivals and you must follow certain religious rituals like circumcision and that, all that stuff, that will get us closer to God. And Paul is reminding them, he says, listen, you idiots. And again, that's a paraphrase. He says, look, for goodness sake, I'm in prison. Make my life a bit easier. How much do I have to get it through to you? God has already come down to you. You don't have to do anything to get to him. He's done everything that needs to be done. 
This is where the church, you know, went spectacularly wrong in the past. You know, people trying to earn their salvation. So we end up having to have a great Protestant Reformation to actually say, you know, hang on. You're justified by faith. Solely, utterly, completely on the basis of what he's done. It's a done deal. Because of all that Jesus Christ has done at Calvary 2,000 years ago, you have been saved. You have been set free. You have been delivered. It is finished. Live like that. And our response by faith is simply, is, is, is far too simple. All we have to do is trusting in his, his death and his resurrection and trusting in the fact that today and tomorrow and the next day, I have been saved, I have been set free, I have been delivered. And lastly, what do we need to do? What, what is there? There must be something. We, have, we must have to do something. Have a look at verse 23. Our part in all of this is pretty straightforward, actually. I, I think we have a tendency to overcomplicate the, the matter. But let's have a look at what he says. All we have to do is, verse 23, continue in your faith established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That's it. Just keep on keeping on. That's all you have to do. You know, and how do we do it? Well, uh, you know, I think being part of the body of Christ is pretty important because he's the head of the body of Christ. And as I said before, staying connected to him, staying connected to the head, who is the command center and the control center of everything we do, is important. Keeping him front and center and centering our lives on him and around him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And surprise, surprise, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his what? His glory and his grace by joining um, with other followers, join with other followers of Jesus, journey on this journey of faith together with other people here on a Sunday during the week in a small group. Share your lives, share your challenges. Despite the fact that our bit in the gospel, our contribution is so simple, so many of us struggle with it. We overcomplicate it because we're trying to work our way towards God. And we need each other's help. And it's like, no, 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 stop doing all of that. All you've got to do is just stay close to him. Just keep your eyes fixed on Jesus as we encourage one another in the faith. Uh, give ourselves to the reading of scripture and to worship and prayer and, and on and on. Just simply fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and ask him to fill you. Ask him to fill us with his presence, his Holy Spirit. And by his grace, let us continue in our faith. Let us be established and firm, and let us not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Is it any wonder that this Galilean to this day is too much for our small hearts? If only we could understand him, if only we could see him, if only we knew how he longs to run to him. I just want to finish uh, with a quote from the Lord of the Rings. Uh, we were talking about favorite books, and this was up there, so... Uh, sorry, uh, that's the overflow of that. This is uh, a quote from the Lord of the Rings. It's from the 2000s. It's where uh, Aragorn is addressing Gandalf. And this is uh, what he says to him. And, and I think there's something in here, Tolkien, a bit of a genius. There's something in here that it reflects 
what we have to say to the Lord. This is how we are to respond to him when we understand his glory, when we understand who he is, when we understand what he's done. Then we say things like this. Aragon said this to Gandalf, and this I also say, you are our captain and our banner. The Lord, the dark Lord has nine kings, yes, but we have one mightier than they, the white rider. He has passed through the fire and the abyss and they fear him and we will go wherever he leads.